0: Hey there, Hugo Bowen Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Now, this episode of Vanishing Gradients is part two of a conversation I had with Peter Wang, CEO and co-founder of Anaconda, a creator of Pi Data, Bokeh Data Shader, a student and teacher of the human condition. And in Peter's own words, which you'll hear in this conversation, a steward of a large colony of blacksmiths making tools for the revolution, the data revolution. It's a cybernetic revolution, Hugo. So, in this episode, Peter and I talk about what the value proposition of data science actually is, and data not as the new oil, but rather data as toxic nuclear sludge, the fact that data isn't at all real, and what we really have are frozen models, the future promise of data science, gifting economies with finite games economics thrust onto them, and much, much more. Peter and I dive into what is essentially a relatively experimental conversation around open source software development as a model for the development of human civilization in the context of developing systems that prize local generativity over global extractive principles. Now, if that's a mouthful, which it was, or an earful, which it may well have been, all will be revealed in this conversation. If you haven't checked out part one, feel free to, it's the previous episode of Vanishing Gradients, but I'll also give a brief recap here, and then we'll jump in. So in part one, Peter and I jumped into many of the technical and sociological beginnings of Python being used for data science, a history of the Conda distribution, PyData, and NumFocus. We also began to discuss open source software in the broader context of finite and infinite games and how open source software is a paradigm of humanity's ability to create generative, nourishing and anti-rivalrous systems. Whereby anti-rivalrous, what we really mean are things that become more valuable for everyone the more people use them, such as open source software. But we need to be mindful of finite game dynamics. For example, those driven by corporate incentives, co-opting and parasitizing the generative systems that we build. Peter and I also talked about the emergence of online collaborative environments, particularly with respect to open source, and attempted to figure out the moving parts of Pi data and why it has had the impact it has, including the fact that many core developers were not computer scientists or software engineers but rather scientists and researchers building tools that they needed on an as-needed basis. We also talked about the challenges in getting adoption for Python and the things that the PyData stack solves, those that it doesn't and what progress is being made there. These are all considerations we delve far deeper into in this episode. Additionally if you haven't heard the terms finite and infinite games before here's a snippet from the previous episode that I hope will be clarifying.
1: The idea of a finite game is a game that has well defined terminal win condition. And there's only, there's only, if for some person to win, someone else has to lose. There's n number of dollars, there's n number of properties on a Monopoly board or in checkers. I win or you win. In chess, there's only so many moves, so many pieces, so many squares. And so many of the things that we encounter in the world, there's a natural scarcity to them. And what humans do in lieu of actually killing each other is we set up Finite games. We set up scarcity games and dynamics and competitions to see who, so we vie for the scarce resources. So there's a natural zero sum mentality. If I win, you lose. If you win, I lose. Infinite games, on the other hand, is there are a few examples of of things that we do that are infinite games. And the idea of an infinite game is that there isn't really a final win condition and there isn't, it it can be multi win. Yeah, one person can win, someone else can win. In fact, sometimes both people winning means they each get more. Right? Very few things in the natural world have this dynamic where when you give something away, you get more of it back. Like that doesn't happen. But in infinite game territory, in collaboration spaces, you have this dynamic, right? Travis Oliphant, by giving away the source code and opening it up, he got way more functionality back from the world. And all those people did it by joining in and giving their contributions too. It's a stone soup sort of thing. So it, the point of an infinite game is to keep the game going as long as possible.
0: Now it's time to jump in. Welcome to Vanishing Gradients. what you and and Travis and Brian and all of you did at Continuum and now at Anaconda is very rich information about the intersection of open source and business and and venture-backed startup land as well. So I'd like to, I don't necessarily consider all of VC necessarily extractive, of, of course, but I do think there is definitely that element to it. So I'm wondering what the trade-offs are in working in the open source space and accepting vent- venture capital and how that can inform the conversation we're
1: having now my experience and this is all just i can only speak through the lens of like my personal experience on this of stuff, course right? for people in startup land vcs seem like at the top of the food chain but from people who work in the capital markets and work in you know, institutional investment and whatnot, VCs are just one set of players in a very big ecosystem. That's actually much bigger than VC. So you know, the top tier VCs on Sand Hill Road and that everyone talks about, you know, they have a certain prestige to them for people who are going you know, into startup land and coming out of Common and all this stuff. Uh, and there's a reason. that They've incubated a lot of, they've funded and built a lot of really good companies, but they are still just one component in a very big set of capital market players and ultimately anyone playing the capital markets you're beholden to your investor just like startups are ultimately beholden to their investors yep. the investors are beholden to their limited partners who provide yeah, the money for exactly. the funds exactly i'd
0: love a sociology of like data tooling lps one day
1: yeah it would be interesting to actually go upstream a lot of lps are in interested place, yeah. in this stuff they're all over the place right some lps care some of are family offices every lp has it's it's it basically lps are just massive massive, multi-hundred millionaires and billionaires and sovereign funds and college endowments and all these kinds of things. And they write really big checks to investment management firms that then go and give the money to to entrepreneurs or to invest in land or building real estate. So the reason I try to give this one on one introduction to capital markets is because the thing that I want people to understand is that anyone in the middle who isn't investing their own money Is merely an agent of the principal that holds, that actually owns the money. Mm. And so there's a concept called the principal agent problem, principal slash agent problem, or principal dash, which is that agents are incentivized to do certain things that are not always 100% aligned with what the principal wants. They act on behalf of the principal, but ultimately they have a living they need to make. They have a personal reputation. Their fund and their firm has a reputation they need to maintain. There's all these things that agents have to do. Their incentives are not 100% aligned with the principal. The principal says, I give you a billion dollars. You need to go and make me a certain percentage back. And you get carry on it. You get all these different things to incentivize you to make money on that money. But ultimately... I give you the money, and then that's transactional for me, essentially. You need to give me that money back with a lot of interest. And that's what the principal cares about. And then everyone in the middle is agents. Until that money finally hits somebody who's going to take the money and apply it to some problem. That person is putting their own energy, their time, their personal reputation. They're not spending time with their family, their kids, or their parents. They're putting like. The most precious resource any person has is their time. They're putting personal time and energy into this. So the principal has a unique stake and the entrepreneur, the doer, has a unique stake. Everyone in the middle is an agent. Okay, so the reason I say things like that, and that's very reductive. I realize it can be a little offensive to people maybe, but it is actually, I'm a physicist. I like to look at things at the fundamentals. This is the fundamental wiring that people can, you can't break out of this pattern if you're in the pattern. This is the pattern. So then what happens is, if the LP doesn't have a stipulation, or doesn't have a point of view, or doesn't put requirements on those agents on those VCs or investors to do certain kinds of things, they're not going to do them in general, unless it dramatically de risks or dramatically increases the possibility of the outcome. So Funds and firms can say, VCs and venture firms, they can tell you, we have a thesis, we're operating this way, we're this kind of firm, we're founder-friendly, we're this, we're that, we're a growth stage firm, we help accelerate that. Everyone's got a story to tell, and they will try their best to actually live that story. But when push comes to shove, they are agents. And they have to do certain things that hold them at least, what's the term? Like they have to be at par with everyone else in that ecosystem because it's a small world. When you get into the world of managing billions of dollars, it's a very small world. Everyone knows each other and the reputations last a long time. That's the issue there. If you are a company and you want to do these like great things and like a B Corp, this stuff, and impact, a social impact and generativity and all this stuff. You can tell that story till you're blue in the face. At the end of the day you got to look at your investors and say, what does the investor want and how am I going to give that return to the investor? And if you're cool on that and the investor says, yeah, that's actually what, what it is, then you're great. If you can believe and trust that the investor is going to fight for you to have certain other kinds, like you can perform outside the envelope of expectations, then that's a trust that you have with them. Maybe they have a big enough portfolio and everyone's got some play money. Everyone does, right? So all the, the firms, the, the partners, they'll have some play money they can toss at various random things, just as like outsized bets. If it completely blows up, it doesn't matter. And so then, if you are lucky enough to receive some of the doesn't matter money, then you're very free to do whatever you want. The so lucky you. But most people don't get that. Most people, there is an expectation of a certain level of return, certain kinds of things, and there's a certain time window of performance. Those are just that's just the way that play that whole system works. How does it impact a company that is building tools, or maybe a, a different
0: question? If we can go in either way. Is how does it? impact the data tooling landscape which have we've seen the incentive system for these agents or venture capitalists is to have a portfolio of tools which some of which will work some of which won't and is there a tragedy of the commons therein in the tooling landscape
1: there's a lot of fertilizer dandelion seeds being dumped on the pasture yeah absolutely (laughs) put it that way and i think i don't know how to put it my inclination and i'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a rebel in a sense. And so I, I really love the kind of energy and ethos of the open collaboration environment, sci-fi and pie data and on all these things. I think it really brings out the best in a lot of people. And there's such a positivity and generativity in it that. I see my personal mission is to help defend some of that. And the way that I plan to defend that is to, number one, just call, just talk about these dynamics, even just having conversations like this and just being explicit yeah. about what I think some of the challenges are. That's actually awareness raising is an important thing. But another thing is, I do, and maybe this is naive, but I do believe that users are more sophisticated than maybe what sometimes VCs or Gardner analysts or whatever give them credit for. Because a lot of the VC money being made that was made in software over the last 20 years, it had a certain playbook of how it would take software to market, and there's all these different kinds of things. My hope is that if we can actually build a more sophisticated user base, that market becomes too expensive to go to market in inorganic ways and that market builds community and builds peer review no sorry not peer review but builds peer review sites and builds connection and builds all these things so that they're not alienated from each other if you're about to use some if i were to give a concrete example i don't know what kind of data analysis problem that you would encounter that you haven't encountered before but if you're to encounter some problem and you want to do something with it, you would do some Google searching probably, but then you would also ask some people who maybe work in that area. Exactly. what do you use,
0: right? I ask people in Slack channels now. We're very good at finding, especially now, given all the bullshit out there, we're very good at finding the highest signal places, and we're getting better at that. i got people on WhatsApp, dude, or Signal. I'll message you sometime to be like, what's up? Because (laughs) Twitter and Google tells me like, I'm like searching for pipeline and tells me like data ops and I'm like what is happening? All these SEO experts and digital whatevers like right. pumping crap into my brain.
1: Yeah, the proliferation of the star ops is a very enterprise software move, mm-hmm. right? Because what they tell you, what they tell you, is that you have to go and be if new categories are emerging, you want to position your product in the category and be a leader in the category and pay off the gardeners and whatnots of the world to get yourself into the magic quadrant and all these other kinds of things. And so if you can't do it, then you should create a category. And because it's all top-down selling kind of stuff, it's all like it's vending into the ignorance gap where you have practitioners, sometimes it's IT folks, sometimes it's software developers. They don't know what to do, what's best. So they go and they search for how to do these things because it's an emerging area. And that ignorance gap is where people will come in and just essentially carpet bag, And I find that extremely, I find that really dis- dishonest and, I, and as a technologist and as a, like an old school coder nerd, it offends me a little bit. And so that's why I don't have a lot of respect for that kind of thing. But I do believe that if we're able to build, and this is one of the reasons why we're building the nucleus, like the community site, we really want to create an environment where there is a high trust, high signal noise place for practitioners to actually share their insights and whatnot with each other. And these kinds of forums did once exist on the internet, right? When we were not all just random alienated avatars on sites with hundreds of millions of users, we would actually find forums and find places where we'd create an account and we would build reputation. We'd get to know other people. We'd actually have a relationship. And if you can create a place where relationships are possible, then you can have a much more... It's a much more credible and trustful environment for sense-making around emerging technologies or or whatever. So that's the hope. That's why we're doing that piece of it. And that is exactly, I may not have expected how it would come around to all this, but it's exactly the kind of turf grass. We're trying to basically put the stuff down to put turf grass in so that then the commons don't erode right from this constant pounding of more like whatever... ML, DevSecOps, things, something you know, next year. Not that those concerns, I say these, some of these things in a flippant manner, it's not that the problems don't exist or the problems aren't legitimate problems. It's more of this rush to put labels on a category of emergent problems and then immediately try to find some off-the-shelf thing that just solves it. It's highly unlikely that an off-the-shelf product thing solves this. And another name I will drop in here is Eric Von Hippel and his work on democratizing innovation and his critique of products even as a concept. His research on the idea that products only ever suffice 60 to 70 percent of a user's need. They have to self-service the remaining 30, 40 percent of it. And this applies from, tra- from like tractors in the cornfields of Iowa to hard drives to whatever. Right, the idea that we can vend products into technology areas of emergent practice that have hundreds of thousands of different possible configurations that's a pipe dream. Like, just stop trying to buy stuff, just you're gonna have to build things for a while. So, I think that's an area where, yeah, some of this stuff is emerging, it's a hot area of innovation. So, my goal is to just be at least one standard, one battle standard on the battlefield to say. This is a credible, crowdsourced, practitioner-led, kid-tested, mother-approved, like innovation looks like. And trying to find the lines of demarcation, trying to find the allies who, who will join us under that banner.
0: That's awesome. And I'm personally very proud and humbled to have created a bunch of content uh, with Coiled on parallelized <laughs> computing and, and scalable computing. So we've got some videos and, and a blog posts and a white paper and that, that type of stuff. That That's cool to have started off that collaboration. Yeah, I want to go a bit deeper into... Data and mm-hmm. like I'm in turns quite bullish and then bearish on data science and analytics. And why are we doing this, Peter?
1: The interesting thing is that the world. If you really go and you work in industry for a while, and especially I, I was very privileged. I really enjoyed my time at Enthought, and I was quite lucky to have the opportunity to go into many different kinds of businesses, mm-hmm. see, work with maybe scientists in a particular area or quants at some investment bank, and then also from that vantage point usually a point that is very data-driven, that has sometimes physics equations, sometimes you know not so accurate financial equations, whatever, that power computing. And then from that vantage point, look at the rest of the organization. And whether it's an oil and gas company, whether it's an investment bank, wherever you go, what you find is that the landscape of the modern firm, 40, 50 years after the PC revolution, in the digital era, information age, human decisioning at these firms are, for the most part, not very data-driven. They're retroactively data-informed, but on a forward-looking a basis... There's mad confirmation it's,
0: it's, bias constantly, I
1: There's find. mad confirmation bias, and the forward-looking stuff is always some VP taking a swag. Highest-paid person's opinion. Highest-paid person's opinion, taking a swag, and having the data people generate pretty PDFs and PowerPoints to explain two quarters down the road why unexpected things caused it to not work. So the sad truth is the world is deeply inefficient and less efficient than it could be because it is not a data-driven world. We're 10 years after the peak of the Hadoop big data wave, right? With the, all this marketing with AI and all these other things. For all of that, it's like professional, that's all pro wrestling. That's all like, if you talk, if you look at, I love watching some of the stock market stuff, especially segments on tech news and everything else. It's all theater, all kayfabe. At the end of the day, most of it doesn't work. Most of it is IT overspend on stuff that doesn't work, that really is ultimately most businesses run on spreadsheets being emailed between VPs. Okay, we've really not progressed. Some data systems are more advanced. There's some transactional systems that are incredibly advanced. But for the most part, most businesses are still run based on not just human a loop, but humans calling all the shots based on a couple of data things confirming their biases. And the way they sometimes there's that that quip that science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> that's great. Businesses generally advance one VP exit at a time or one SVP or one CVP exit at a time. And so why is that such a problem? That's a problem because it is not just inefficient from a resources perspective. Those people get paid a lot. They make crap decisions. They create a tremendous amount of trauma, a lot of wage earners that then go home and export that trauma to their kids and their spouses. It's really horrible dynamics. And then all the money they're getting paid essentially is white collar welfare that could be going to feed starving kids. So there's a deep sort of like global humanity level inefficiency. But you put all of that aside, there's an existentially important problem, which is that the world is getting more complex faster so all of the businesses that actually facilitate infrastructure products and goods that we need to live and all these things all those businesses have to get a lot much better and much more agile at responding to a more dynamic environment so part of what happens there this is the opportunity for those vcs right is they know those businesses are dinosaurs and can't do crap they're just paralyzed in place so essentially all you do is you go build a business fund some startup, they get a certain amount of revenue, they challenge some incumbent and incumbent buys them. And then usually the thing dies and withers inside the incumbent. So that innovation dies, right? The VC gets their take, they get some multiple on exit, the corporate people that acquired it, they get to give themselves to declare success and give themselves a bonus, Uh, the founders, and hopefully they, they do well, like the people who work the business that got acquired. But at the end of the day, did that innovation really make it out? In general, most cases, no, it really doesn't. Sometimes there are success stories for sure, but in general, it's really not even 50 50. So if we look at that and we say, okay, hold up, why are we doing all of this, right to your question? The reason I'm doing all of this is because I'm hoping that the new generation, younger people going into these businesses armed with these data tools are going to basically slash and burn their way through the inefficiencies of the previous models. And one of the ways they do it is from within the belly of the beast. The other ways they do it is by learning all the trade secrets, not trade secrets, but they learn how the beast operates. And they're like, this totally sucks. I'm leaving, taking three of my best friends that are super awesome over here. We're going to build a startup. We're going to just eat this thing's lunch. Mm -hmm. So that's really, so I, I see myself as the steward of a large colony of blacksmiths making tools for the revolution awesome. it's a data revolution it's a cybernetic revolution i love it we must have firms that are smaller that are more agile data-driven that are that the prediction action observation out in the market back like that has to run tight, yes. has to run a very and tight
0: networks way. of small firms interoperating and being and i think the interoperability in the tooling space via networks of small firms building tools at different points in the pipeline i think is a very promising future as well.
1: Consider this. We think about supply chains for physical goods. If you're trying to make a, a phone or a toaster oven, whatever, you're trying to build a physical good, you're going to say, okay, I have this prototype of the product. I want to feel this product. I need to, to sell a million units next year. Let me go look at the supply chain. I'm going to look at my suppliers. Who can supply me electric cords? Who can supply me a heating element? Who can give me, who can uh, handle boxing up all of these things and distributing it, right? You're going to ask your suppliers and distributors and ultimately your retailers to give you models of what their stuff looks like. Now they give you those models on the basis of maybe PDFs with some tables built in, with some pricing and lead times and stuff. Sometimes they'll even give you a spreadsheet where you can model it out yourself. Imagine the future if that was actually all APIs. If it was actually, give me, no, give me your model. Give me your freaking model. And I can put in here and do like stochastic walks through possibility space of optimizing, like I can do convex optimization of do I sell toasters or toaster ovens or air fryers, right? I can do all of this stuff on the basis of you having actually given me your model so I can pull it into my ensemble model. That's a very different world than where some VP looking at a thing squinting and being like, ah, screw it, I think we're gonna do this next quarter.
0: I love it. And it comes down to something that we're gonna to speak to soon, which is cybernetics and getting us as pilots or controllers working well with the machines. I do think I love the idea of the data revolution and supporting people doing the data work because what I see now is I have a very poorly formed thesis I've been reading a book by an anthropologist, David Graeber, called Bullshit Jobs, where he actually...
1: Ha, I heard about that. He creates
0: a taxonomy, <laughs> a typology of, of bullshit jobs, and he's actually identified an increase in the number of people who consider their own jobs bullshit. And part of his project is to discuss, meet and write with people who... He would never say, your job is bullshit, but speaking with people who actually feel that their jobs create no value. And I don't think data science is like that totally bullshit, but I know a lot of working data scientists and analysts who create all types of work for their organization that they feel is never used. And Graeber uses the term spiritual violence with, with respect to this, but it, there is a very demeaning lack of professional dignity with this type of wage labor, I think. And being part of a revolution to enable people to come up and be proud of the data work they do when it's used, I think, is incredibly important for our field.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, when we talk about these kinds of jobs, a lot of times the bullshit job, actually there's a strong correlation, bullshit jobs tend to be white-collar jobs. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Blue-collar jobs, labor, you can see, are you doing it or are you not doing yep. it, right? But the white collar stuff is like, why well, send sent some emails today. <laughs> Absolutely. This is part of the pushback, I think, that we're not talking
0: about with remote work. I, part of the reason corporations don't want people to work remotely isn't because of any of the stuff we've been talking about. It's because they can't see them just sitting in the office pretending to work. It puts the busy work on Slack again and through email.
1: If I could actually pull this back to what we talk about, the anti rivalrous versus Please. right? The industrial era mentality. Our modern theory of the firm and a lot of management practices and techniques, they come from the industrial era, which then was informed by military-type stuff, like the Henry Ford stuff and whatnot. They Really, it was about managing... Fordism, Taylorism, you yeah. know? Yeah, Fordism. It's its about managing human labor. With a fucking clock, man. With like the standing clock. there on With the, the clock. factory floor timing. The tyranny of the clock. Sorry. And then the... the tell us how you really feel. <laughs> <you know. laughs> so the interesting thing about that is that When we have such a huge, when we move into the information age, and then you have such a diversity of outputs possible within the same unit of labor, that labor is no longer the right way to measure it. And a lot of people have not really figured this. I paid for my time or for my tasks. I've literally asked that to people before. In small firms, even doing information work, there's no place to hide, right? If you're not getting your stuff done, everyone can see you're not getting your stuff done. When you get to a really larger size. When people lose sight of the connection of their work to the bigger output, and there's a tier, what happens is, this is, again, the principal-agent problem. The principals up top, like the C-suite, they know what strategy they want to implement, and the worker bees down here, they know the things they can do. When you put a layer of agents in the middle, whose job is to manage up and down, or up and down, then it becomes extremely difficult to a lot of stuff kind of filters through and then doesn't quite make it, right? The signal noise That's is very lossy. difficult to discern. It's extremely lossy. And the interesting, I was just reading a thing about remote work, two two different things. One person, uh, was a Reddit comment, this guy bragging about the fact that he quit his previous job with a vengeance and it felt so good because the boss was crap and the job was everything. And then he picked up like a part-time thing, doing something, I think it was some claims processing insurance paperwork kind of thing. He was getting paid basically 35K a year to do this thing, but it takes him like no time to do it. It takes an hour a day to do it. So he picked up a second job, another 35K a year, picked up a third one, another 35. He works basically 60% of what he used to work, and now he's making three times what he's making. And this kind of thing is I don't want to extrapolate on one data point, but this is a very interesting kind of thing. The other thing that someone was saying was that one of the challenges with going to remote work is that it really, the tide goes out and then people really start looking at where am I getting my inputs and where do my outputs go. Everyone who's doing make work and busy work in the middle gets cut out of it. And so a lot of bosses and managers and whatnot who have been quite superfluous to the process are all going to get squeezed out of this process. So we're going to see, I think there will be a revolution in tooling around, corporate, around remote work, hybrid work, um, internal efficacy. And you're going to end up with a situation where companies are going to start realizing there's a lot of efficiencies they can gain. It'll be interesting. I'm actually quite hopeful about this. But back to the point about labor, Taylorism, information age, right? and the meaning, the lack of meaning of some of the very smart people who use data science, equipped with these tools, they go into businesses, and to what end? And I think this is the thing of when we talk about spiritual violence, when you take somebody's time and you engage them on something, what you owe them is not just the wage. You really owe them some ability to derive some meaning from their work. You can't starve them of meaning. That's not right. And unfortunately, most of corporate America becomes quite starved of meaning because no one at the top is sitting there. There's no chief meaning officer saying, How do we avoid and how do we measure the level of anomie across the organization? And how do we mitigate it? I think in Bhutan or somewhere, they have a, a gross, gross happiness product, They're their me- gross so national happiness. Right? Which is a little bit like, whatever. I love Schmachtenberger, right? On Rogan, he gave, he
0: said, GDP is a horrible myth. Like it goes up with, as addiction goes up, as war goes up. And he thought, he said, the inverse of addiction is perhaps a good measure of he said a nation's health but we can say that of any collection of people
1: well addiction is actually only one kind of a dark thing so it's not just the inverse of the one hole yeah there's a lot of holes people get sucked into but the general concept i think is quite good that if we don't know what is we should what the best thing is like what is gross national happiness Well, that's hard to measure but can we measure one over gross national suffering pain trauma alcoholism suicide blah, right and yeah we that might be a useful measure just to say all right if I don't know where I'm supposed to go, but my, my distance from the cliff is still a useful measure, how far away am I from the edge? Because I might not end up where I want to go, but at least I'm not going over there. Nope. So I think with this kind of thing, it's the same thing. The structure of businesses, when you look at information work, which could be a generative thing, could be an abundant thing, an anti rivalous thing. Businesses from the top, in order to have management be able to figure out how to extract in order to better metrics on extractive things, we completely disregard the concept of freedom and autonomy and the kinds of things that actually give people a sense of meaning at work. Making consequential decisions. I've all maintained that's the root of meaning, is in making consequential decisions. If you're doing all these things and then it goes up and just fitters away, it dies in a PDF somewhere, you don't feel good about yourself. And, that's, it's not, and life isn't about feeling good, to be clear. But if we create a, a system of the world, or we're constantly depriving people of meaning during their waking hours, and in their collaboration with their peers, they see during their waking hours, that cannot be, cannot possibly be the right architecture for civilization. Yeah, I, I, did you have an original question? I think we've
0: wrapped around with respect. My question was around the idea of bullshit jobs as it re- relates to analytics and data. Oh, so, right, but I think right, I think right. we've done that. What I want to where I want to go now is. I asked you what's valuable about data, why we're in data, okay? Oh, right, right, yes. Where I want to take this is, now let me get this right. I want to talk about the value of data and then let's say the, the suffering caused by data. And what I mean, like we've heard all this shit like data is the new new oil and, and that that type of stuff. But you may have even sent me this originally years ago. It's a talk by Maciej Czeglowski at Strata called Haunted by Data. And I'm, I'm gonna just read you the opening. He's the pinboard guy, it, yeah, oh, he's great. So, I, there's this great pinboard talk he goes, where he he, he opens the talk, he says, I don't mean to be negative, and he holds up his glass of water and he says, but this, um, I expected potato vodka, and they gave me wheat vodka. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but at the start of this talk, seven, seven years ago, he wrote, in preparing this talk, I decided to check out the data landscape since I hadn't seen it for a while. The terminology around big data is surprisingly bucolic. Data flows through streams into the data lake or else it's captured in logs. A data silo stands down by the old data warehouse where granddaddy used to sling bits and high above it all floats the cloud. Then this stuff presumably flows into the digital ocean. I would like to challenge this picture and ask you to imagine data not as a pristine resource, but as a waste product, a bunch of radioactive toxic sludge that we don't know how to handle. In particular, I'd like to draw a parallel between what we're doing and nuclear energy another technology whose beneficial uses we could never quite untangle from the harmful ones discuss
1: mike drop yeah he's completely right i did this podcast with Mar- martin Casado and recent on the adres norwood mm. podcast and, and i said actually i don't think there is such thing as data there's only frozen models and i stand by that statement tell us about that i think our metaphysical approach to data the muggles will do the muggle things and say the muggle things. But I think as data practitioners, we should be extremely clear as to what it is we're doing here. Every single datum that you collect is the result of a tremendous amount of processing through the DSP, through the hardware, through the software, all this stuff, before it even ends up in some CSV that is probably named wrong. (laughs) So Delimiter issues that nothing can figure out. With delimiter issues. But Before we get all waxing poetical about the cybernetic future, for a moment, let's consider the actual present, which is a bit a bit off. But the reason I say that, so metaphysically that we have to be honest with ourselves, is that if as practitioners we don't hold the line, then we will never be able to convince the business users about the right paradigmatic frame to think about this with. And so I really do stand by that framing. I agree with Muchek as well, that it's the the data is oil, it's this precious thing to be captured, defended, and oh these users want to hold on to their own data and it's private. It's so like you can't hold on to data because most brilliant thing ever said about information, information is a verb. Right? Information so my my whole thing about d- data is just frozen models is really a riff, it's a corollary on that statement. Information is a verb. Information is the difference that makes a difference. So is the number three data? Depends on who you ask. Depends on where it came from. Depends on what someone's going to do with it. The idea that there is this objective distilled thing. So you get a little cup and I have a number three in it. I have a piece of data, right? No, you don't. It's just the number three. (laughs) Data is actually the statement about the sense-making system and a decisioning system. And in the conjunction of those two things, one might detect some resonant patterns that you can then schematize and say, well, this is the data flow between the eyeball and the muscle. But if you take the eyeball out of the equation, you take the muscle out of the equation, it's just some random electrical spikes. It doesn't mean anything. So this is the kind of, I like for people to take a more transcendent view metaphysically of what data is. It's all, it's just numbers, unless you actually have a sense of where it came from and how, and where it's going and why. So it's what is it, Don Draper's thing about happiness. Happiness, you know, happiness is the moment before you need more happiness. Like data data is the thing. It's knowledge just before you're confused again, yeah. right? And actually,
0: Corey Doctorow has some great articles on what he calls the half life of data and actually has a premise of how addicted social media is itself to data collection due to the incredibly short half life of data.
1: And the dangerous thing about that, just as a side note on that, it turns out the human mind is very plastic and human behavior is incredibly easy to condition because we're just, we're, <laughs> we're still animals, right? So the world the entire system of the western world the consumer mass consumer world it is optimizing to make and condition people that are more predictable that are more heter- homogeneous in their consumption patterns, in their design, Talks back
0: to Henry Ford as well, actually. And a lot of the... Any color you want, yeah, as long as it's black. Yeah.
1: But Noam Chomsky talks about this with mass media and, yes. and manufacturing consent. And what we do is we then condition people to look for as-if novelty, as-if difference. But there's distinction without a difference. Which genre like which the sneaker, there's people who are really obsessed with sneakers and like the vintages of Kicks, sneakers, and there's yeah. a release and all these things. And, and it's they're all literally made in the same factory as like the $5 Chinese knockoffs. And there's distinctions without a difference. And we're conditioning consumer, we're conditioning people to be consumers of lots of distinguished aesthetics that have no difference in the fundamentals and substance. And if you just basically eat that kind of sugar all day long your whole life, ultimately you end up with a deficiency of meaning because actual meaning comes from an embodied consequential set of decisions and relationships. You can't be in right relationship or meaningful relationship with with objects that have bolted on aesthetics to make you crave the next object. That's just not how it goes. So you end up with this vitamin defi- vitamin meaning is going to be deficient for you. And I think about those, like, those sad pictures of like the fish in the oceans that have eaten all the little microplastics and their bellies are full, but they have no nutrition. And this is essentially what we've, what we're doing over and over again with the bad uses of data powering the monstrous like engine of consumer capitalism. We're just shoveling more stuff into more people's faces and eyeballs. And we're at the same time trying to condition those eyeballs to expect the same kind of novel, and that is the system of the world that's quite broken. That's what my friends and I call Game A, right? And the only reason this engine does this, if you, maybe people here, listeners here, have, have read, I would imagine many of them heard about the concept of the uh, the paperclip optimizer, right? What if you have an AI and it go, it's super hyper intelligent, and we tell it to go make cheap paperclips or make it really cheap to make good paperclips, and it starts optimizing. At some point, it basically goes off the rails. It decides that the most efficient way to do this is to actually kill all humans, eliminate humanity, pave over the entire planet to just make paper clips. We already have that. right? the modern system of the world creates disposable all sorts of stuff, burning up the planet, polluting the oceans, killing off all sorts of biodiversity. And to do what? It's not paper clips, but it's a hundred thousand different kinds of sneakers, which like no one needs. So this is the kind of thing that like fast fashion. There's just been the photos of the places, the landfills are having to open up in South America and I think parts of Africa to just dump clothes that were made by sweatshop labor in Southeast Asia, It all of it is to do what? It goes, it cycles through the U.S., cycles through the Hot Topic and the other places and comes back out, ends up dumped in the Global South somewhere to do what? To make some number in a spreadsheet tick up to show quarterly revenue growth. So some analysts will say this number should tick up because they hit precisely their earnings Report. That's again a really rather flawed way to run human civilization. Anyway, that was a bit of a diatribe, but I love that you mentioned
0: game A, because that is where I wanted to go to at some point. Also, if you have heard of the paperclip maximizer, great. If you haven't, I think probably Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, is one of the places you can-I don't know if Boston created that thought experiment, but definitely he he made it relatively famous. So I actually do do want to talk about game A. We've got somewhat abstract and metaphysical in this conversation, and I love it. So I'm, I, I want us to actually, we may l- lose some people, but I actually want to lean, lean into it for the people who, who are still here. And I, I think it's important enough to discuss. If you're interested in the ideas that we talk about with Game A, I definitely suggest you look into the work of Jordan Hall, or is it Jordan Greenhall these days? I'm sorry, but he's a friend. Jordan Hall. Jordan. Jim Hall, Rutt. And on he was on the Jim Rutt podcast, uh, Jim Rutt show twice. The first episode he was on. Only twice? Okay. Yeah, and you were on there once. You should go back. Once. Yeah. And also Daniel Schmachtenberger has some interesting stuff on this, but there are co- communities we can, we can include some links in the show notes as well. I'm going to paraphrase some of what Jordan Hall said on the Jim Rutt show, probably quite badly. But essentially, they discussed how a lot of what we have today emerged from when societies were at the band level. So below the Dunbar number, below 180 people or something along those lines. And we've developed a bunch of collective intelligence tools. What John Vavaki, who I encourage everyone to check out, to a psycho psycho-techno- psycho technologies but a, a collective intelligence co- toolkit that tried to solve a lot of the issues and problems we had and have as as a community the first three problems are how to survive in nature how to survive competition with other groups and a lot of the time want to actually win that competition not merely survive and third is how to survive in internal defection this actually comes back to tragedy of the commons free rider internal defection i encourage everyone to check out the definition of multipolar traps in an incredible essay called meditations on moloch on slate star codex which is With respect to well, now it's
1: Astral Codex Ten. It is now (laughs) exactly, and
0: it's on Substack. That's for another conversation. Another conversation, by the way. So Game A was a collection of all these technologies to solve these very important problems, and these technologies include society and identity, uh, settled agriculture, military hierarchy, which now plagues corporations and education systems, competition, finite games is a technology that was created in order to solve a lot of Game A problems, literacy, numeracy, market-based society feudalism, capitalism, all of these things, was things developed to, to solve Game A. Now, I'm losing my voice slightly, but that's because I'm getting so excited. The idea <laughs> was that essentially, Game A would work to a certain extent, but it had problems. Then societies would collapse, right? The Game A problems that we encountered were the inability of society to actually police defection from the bottom up in the context of complex human behaviour over a long period of time. Okay, So in the fall of the Roman Empire, we saw a lot of internal defections start to crop up. The second problem was the inability to maintain complicated infrastructure. Similarly in Rome, maintaining aqueducts and roads and this type of stuff. As a society grows, as you build more and more complicated stuff, you get diminishing returns on what it actually provides for you and you have a maintenance issue. The third of course is invasion and enemies and perhaps Imperial Rome, the people at the German border. We can view as that. now. The thing about evolving through collapse is we learn from previous iterations of game a right now what we need for that is for collapse not to not be global right so game a has a fourth problem which is the problem of globalized exponential technology and once again joe rogan's recent interview with daniel schmachtenberger and tristan harris can you can watch that to learn a lot more about these but the exponential technologies such as what we see in, in social media, AI drones, gain-of-function research, as we've definitely seen recently. So the problem now is that if we have a civilizational collapse, Game 8 people says it there's a high chance, and it's a plausible hypothesis, that this will actually be global, so that we need a new game. And this is what's referred to as Game B. We don't know what it is, but we know certain characteristics it might have. And that's why I actually think open-source technology provides a wonderful example of things that could come out in game b so we want more infinite games is one one thing i'm wondering my question for you but feel free to answer any other things that come to mind from this riff is what would data science look like in game b or is there an alternative to the way we practice data science today to make it applicable to a different type of system like that and is there anything you you want to add to my description then as well?
1: I suppose the way I came to some of this, and I think you did a very good job of explaining these concepts. is a lot. We talk about the scale and scope of civilizations and like the current situations and what what Daniel Spockenberger likes to call the kind of the global meta crisis, like our ability to resolve crises as bad, and then. For the first time in human history, we have one single global civilization. That whether it's suitcase nukes, whether it's gray goo, whether it's CRISPR, whether it's whatever, there's a lot of things. We're in the middle of pandemic. All sorts of stuff can happen. It affects everyone. So in the in history, there have been collapses of civilizations, but they've been like, oh, China's regressed a little bit, or oh, there goes the Incans. Someone else is somewhere else is doing something. Some other people somewhere else are doing things. So there's a, but now we have a global civilization and the stakes are much bigger and there's many more ways for a complex interplay of things to cause all sorts of horrible stuff. So we don't even have the capacity to solve those problems. And moreover, a lot of the things that we've built through the medieval institutions to now, we're like actually making those problems worse. Like we're we're putting things in our own way to solve those problems. And so game B is everything that humanity has been doing for the last 10,000, things that we think, are reasonable approaches, like using competition to incentivize people to do whatever, or always building more technology because it's always good, or getting more energy, that's always good, or whatever it might be. All of these things that didn't you didn't have to think about, okay, I have to do a boundary integral over the entire volume of the Earth and over all like our eight and a half billion souls. No one's ever had the responsibility or needed to do that integral before. Now we have to, because everything we do almost is global scale. So Game A, that game is coming up against its hard limits. And p- part of what makes it hard is also that it's not just one thing. Like, oh, if we only had faster computers, or, oh, if only we could do this, if we only had clean energy, there's no single thing. It's a complex problem, which means lots of things are intertwined together. So there's no silver bullet that solves all the problems. So the existing order is breaking down. And the theory is that the people who are affiliated with Game B, the theory is that we will see levels of collapse happening. And it's not like instantly overnight it's going to be some dystopian thing and everyone dies. What's going to happen is as these things fall down, then we're going to see ourselves regressing to authoritarian regimes. We're going to see many tens or maybe hundreds of millions of people dying of starvation, dying of various kinds of natural disasters dying from wars that come over food and water because of climate change, all sorts of different kinds of things. So the regression in human civilization, the decrease in human liberty, the decrease in our ability to do science, all these things will start falling down. The system needs to be reformed. Now the problem is how in the hell do you reform the entire system of the world? Right, with a, a total global $100 trillion GDP, with a, how many thousands, thousands of nuclear warheads and how many, you know, whatever, like everything we do as a world, 8 billion souls, how do you reform that? One of the points that is quoted on the Game B wiki is by Ilya Prigogine, who is a um, Nobel Prize winning physicist, and, and he said, when a system is far from equilibrium, Small islands of coherence have the capacity to shift the entire. Another person articulated this a little bit is Bucky Fuller and the trim tab concept, right? Which the dude, I think at a Golden Globes talked about. But anyway, so there's this idea here is, game B is to figure out, can we build non-hierarchical bottom-up self-organizing approaches to explore and build these islands of coherence? Working groups in economics, currency and monetary theory, imagining the future of cities, political metamodernism can you define coherence as well yeah define coherence i define coherence as something that that can maintain its own metabolism right that there's a homeostasis that when things try to push it when things try to come at it from outside and push it out of a pattern stable pattern it can restore itself into that pattern and that pattern has a it's like a standing wave it's a it's Gosh, I should have a better answer this question. <laughs> complex systems
0: can be coherent. So maybe a hummingbird is coherent in the way that a Boeing 747 isn't.
1: Is that an example? No, that's there's different, there's emergent order versus a complex machine. I guess the concept here of coherence is just these things are they're standalone. They can defend an interiority, an interior oh, order, okay. despite some stuff on the outside, Great. just, you know, some level of disorder on the outside. Yeah. Coherent doesn't necessarily have to mean, like in the kinefin sense, complicated versus complex, as yeah. opposed to complex. Yeah. So you can have complex systems that have coherence, and your whole body is a complex system, but you have coherence. When your brain is going to epileptic seizure, it doesn't have co- Maybe it's actually too coherent. So maybe that's a poor example. But in any case, the point is, the idea of Game B is for people who are concerned with this problem, who have the same perspective on Game A, the system of the world, falling into these collapse modes to get together and form working groups on all these different aspects of what make a human civilization possible. So that is economics, that's agriculture, that's meaning, that's families, that's culture, that's law, all of these different kinds of things. And so you'll find people who are working on permaculture and sustainability. People think like Zach Stein, he's in the the Game B Orbit, and he has this book, Education and Time Between Worlds. Right. How do we actually teach people, children and pe- like adults and everyone? What does education, a lifelong education, look like? There's supposed working on 3D printing and technologies to build in a low impact way so we can build structures that are durable, but then end up creating all sorts of externalities that are negative for the environment they're in. All these kinds of things are people working in this game B space. Now, the way, all that being said, the way that I got involved in thinking about these things was when I had the revelation that. Our open source human ecology and human ecosystem around the Python data movement and SciPy and all that, of course, I had the realization that the economic value created by this small group of people, relatively small group of people, was absolutely astronomical. And so the concepts of modern capitalism. Came around through industrial age, through through better organization, bookkeeping and the rise of cities, then to through yeah, pre-industrial and then industrial structures. A lot of these things where you can take something like capital, apply it to labor, and get some much bigger output out. Capitalism says, look, the surplus, the allocation of surplus should go to. The people who provide the capital should have a, a bigger say in how we allocate the surplus and what we do with it. That's one of the core tenets of capitalism. And the issue is we have a new kind of thing now, which is not labor, but human intellect that provides vastly more amplification than capital. What did the company provide? A laptop and an internet connection? Okay, that costs a few thousand dollars, but then you get one really bright dude or gal, and you know what? They've just produced code that shifts the productivity of millions of people. So we have to have a different conversation about what attribution of economic surplus looks like. And in fact, if you consider, if we look at this powerhouse of open source nerds who collaborated with each other in a gift economy, and a participatory, it is as if you think about like a tr- old school tribal culture of people just nerding out with each other. That's what it was. Then we are conflicts and there's some adjudication that had to happen, and not everything worked out, but for the most part, it was a very free-for-all, it was an experiment in gift economies and participation cultures. And guess what happened? It produced the software that literally powers. All of the alpha in the world, basically, on a go-forward basis. If we have that thing, we have such a powerful human energy, human ecology, it produces this kind of economic lift. If on the basis of this we cannot build a new economic and new sort of institutional order, then we're totally hosed. I love that
0: you framed it as gifting economy. And because in another way, and maybe it wasn't conscious, but it it was a reaction against all the Fordism and capitalism and corporate hierarchy. It's antithetical to that entire system, and it's stepping back from that frame and reconfiguring how we build things together as people co-evolved together. It
1: didn't start off as some kind of Marxist rebellion. No, not at all. <laughs> no. it was, in fact, I think Travis is a little maybe a little horrified to, to, I, he's not horrified by the collaboration aspect, but he's a very he's very much a, a market like he, oh, yeah. Hayek and all these others like he's very much a market uh, a market libertarian. But I think but of course he knows better than anyone like this the value of this gift economy and the collaboration and all these things. There is there's like the best way I have describing this is, and hopefully this is not a spoiler, if people haven't seen the movie Monsters, Inc., okay, mute the next maybe 30 seconds because I'm going to give you the spoiler. Those who have seen it may remember. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but I'm okay with a spoiler. Okay. The spoiler is the reason why these monsters go into people, into little kids' bedrooms at night and scare them, is when kids scream, then like on the outside of the door portal, the monster goes through to go into a bedroom to scare a kid. There's a little thing that basically captures energy from the kids' fear mm. and they bottle it up and that energy is like this the energy that powers the monster civilization in this alternate dimension okay but what at the very end the cool thing is they act goofy these two monsters they don't want to scare this poor girl they act goofy and she starts laughing giggling with delight and the energy and that just oh. blows out that energy just absolutely blows up their energy collection thing and they're like holy shit Joy and happiness can power our civilization too. And okay, spoiler over now. That for me is like the most succinct, of course, Pixar nailed it. It's the most succinct. For capitalist purposes. There you go again. Sorry. People make money. I've got no problem with money as a way of uh, attributing karma. Absolutely. It's when it becomes just paper games for burning up the world, that becomes a problem. And that's when we move to fiat and we move to electronic debt currency that we really created some problems. That's actually where this stuff really has gone off the rails.
0: And I just want to make clear, I'm not anti-market or anti-capitalist at all. I think they're, you know,
1: deep, <laughs> deep issues. I, I'm a refugee from a communist country. Yeah. I, I like the market yeah, economy absolutely. we have here. But that's not where most of the financial constructs sit. The con- financial constructs sit in the plane above yeah. all of them. And competitive markets are better than non-markets <laughs> with
0: monopolies, yeah, right. which we're seeing more and more of. Well,
1: but it bears repeating the earliest capitalists were monopolists. Of course, they were like competition is horribly inefficient. Why would you build two telegraph systems? You have one perfectly good Western Union servicing the entire world, or one good one Bell system servicing all of the country. So the then we take capitalists, that. And when you go back in the decades, 20s and you look yeah. at the, the trust busting and stuff, and the Teddy Roosevelt, they put capitalists and monopolists together in one sentence. All the political cartoons—they were all basically a bunch of just money-grubbing fat cats that were looking to extract because they have the capital. I built the railroad or I built the telegraph network. Of course I get to charge whatever rent I want. So people nowadays only like the Reagan, Thatcher rebranding of all the stuff, do people get markets and capitalism really mull together. But China is definitely a socialist a communist country and they have a lot of healthy markets. And here in the United States, we have markets and you have capitalism. It doesn't have to be capitalism. We have very significant captured cartels and whatnot here that don't have healthy no. markets. And yet it's still capitalism over here. So anyway, but to bring this back to the Game B concept, why? how open source led me to Game B's thinking was really around this idea that if we have, like we have now, it's like Scott, it's like you know, Sully and, and, and Mike are like, going through that door, we've just now seen that laughter can just massively power all this stuff. So I'm just like, oh, shoot. So then what else can we, how can we go from here to see if we can't take this dynamic and scale out crowdsourcing, participatory stuff, downscaling and going against the Kosian theory of the firm or yeah, like all these different things. Can we build smaller, more agile things that have people working in small groups, high meaning, high trust, building valuable things that then sit in a network of other people? And the whole thing becomes a much more vibrant and actually just as economically powerful, if not more economically powerful, system than the Game A sort of way of structuring the world. And the really cool thing is riding into all of these firms on the Trojan horse of this grassroots data and AI revolution.
0: Amazing. So... How can listeners get involved?
1: Learn more about these concepts. Open your mind to the possibility that if you're doing data science, maybe you have a role to play in the revolution. If you think the world is wrong and broken in so many horrible and interlinked ways, recognize that there is a way out. The way out is to actually find other people who agree with you and then listen and learn more about other ways of framing and thinking about this stuff. But ultimately, we're not going to get from here to there without doing a lot of great building economic value. But the manner in which we build that economic value Significantly sets the tone of what happens next.
0: We wanted to talk about cybernetics briefly as well. So perhaps.
1: I just, I, my only thing with the cybernetics thing was just that I think people should use the word cybernetics more <laughs> because the cybernetics is really about closing the control loop. It's not just making predictions and sticking them in a PowerPoint. When Norbert Wiener and others pioneered the field of cybernetics and these ideas, there was no PDFs, right? So They're really this idea of active control, active guidance, learning from the environment, responding to the environment, building models that get smarter in response to a complex environment. All of that is really cybernetics' is control theory, right? And so making all of our organizations and all these human systems as transparently cybernetic as possible so that we can evaluate when they're doing well when they're not doing well when they're doing the right things when they're doing harmful things right now there's just it's so loosely coupled right it's again vp shooting from the hip most of the time the reason i like to use the word cybernetic versus ai or machine learning both of those things really tend to what do they do just like the whole thing about calling data oil and treating data as being precious when it really data is the ephemeral thing that exists when there's a connection between sensing and cognition. That's information, right? It's the state of the sensor and the cognitor being in conjunction with each other, having coherence. So cybernetics is important for us to not think about intelligence being abstracted out and put in the machine. Because that's actually a deeply disempowering and inhumane way to approach the world. The more that we as data people and practitioners, the more that we humor that kind of positioning, the more that we are... We're accepting a frame that says machines are intelligent, so we don't have to think about it. It's the machine's fault. The machine decided the trolley problem, I'm sure it was fine. I'm sure the output is the best possible output (laughs) I could have had because the machine figured the trolley should go over this way versus that way. We really have to push back on this concept because the actual things that we need to do as practitioners are nuanced. The actual decisions we have to make are in a gray zone a lot of times. And it has to be, we have to pull organizations kicking and screaming into the conversation around understanding the ethics and implications of what they're doing. If they can pay somebody to tell them it's an off-the-shelf ethical system, it does the decisioning, it's at fault if something goes wrong, the more we let, again, these VPs want to shoot from the hip, just go and implement AI from the hip, the worse the world is for everyone. Because they will then – the immediate consequence of that is they will then put in legislation and other things that change the competitive landscape to where it's a race to the bottom. All companies have to do it this way. Any company that tries to do the honest thing actually ends up getting hosed because now their decision makers are now responsible for the ethical outcomes, right? So you can absolutely see this race to the bottom unless all of us as practitioners Really drive home this framing and this paradigm that we are building predictive systems. We're build, putting action things in place. And this is us. We are doing it. No one else. There is no AI ghost in the machine that just figured out the right thing to do. We trained that fucking AI, right? We sat there and told it, this is Absolutely. good. And it said, that is good. I'm going to deny these loans or I'm going to go and arrest those people. Like we did that and we have to take responsibility for it. And the problem with game A, and this is really back to the principal agent problem not only has the system the medieval institutions and financialization and the joint stock corporation evolving to what it is now the system of may has is all about alienation it's all about alienation you are a Marxist people no, I'm kidding. marx was not wrong about no. this point though okay, i will say that but he was more about alienating yes, labor agreed. but in this it case, alienates everyone it is alienating it alienates everyone we have absentee ownership we have absentee ownership for most corporations right and so when you have owners that are alienated The consumers are alienated. The workers are alienated. Who the fuck owns anything? Where is the ownership? Where is the courage to say, I am responsible, right? So around these automated decisioning systems, we all, as a practice, as a movement of practitioners, we actually have to draw a line in the sand and say, the buck stops here. Like we are going to actually be a point of accountability about decision making in this. In the I love moment. it, and I think that as a demograph, as demographics change, as boomers age out from their management positions, and new generations of people come in, there will. I think that I, I like to think that my generation has people who are willing to step up to the plate and bear that mantle. And also, I, I love
0: that. One, I'm going to paraphrase, but one of your statements was, "We need as, as data practitioners to drag these organizations like out of these patents and out of these deeply harmful frameworks." And I also. All you data scientists and data analysts and machine learning engineers and deep learners or whatever you call yourself out there we're actually all in an incredible position currently in in the labor market to make certain demands the labor market on the demand side is hot right now so perhaps don't take a job or we can try to make not suggesting unionization in the the, the classic form but we, we are in a position to make demands i also I wasn't going to go there, and I said go and look at Slate Star Codex, but seeing that you mentioned the race to the bottom, I thought it might be good to to wrap up actually to giving the definition of a multi, multipolar trap, which defines so much of what where we are these days. And it is an abstraction or a generalisation of the tragedy of commons, such as factories... Including a river, of the prisoner's dilemma in which defection is better irrespective of anyone else's choice, of the free rider problem where people are just lazy and taking benefit from other people's work, and a generalization of the race to the bottom. It's important to note that below the Dunbar number, when we're in the band level, that it was actually quite easy to police these things. So it's the scale of society which makes it difficult. But the definition of multipolar trap is, in some competition optimizing for X, The opportunity arises to throw some other value under the bus for improved X. Those who take it prosper. Those who don't take it die out. Now, this is key. Eventually, everyone's relative status is about the same as before, but everyone's absolute status is worse than before. And I think we're all in a position, at least as part of this data revolution, to start thinking about how we can create an incentive system which doesn't result in these multipolar traps.
1: Yeah, and I think actually, maybe not unionizing and creating an actual union of of data practitioners is quite difficult, but at least creating a professional society where there are some of these things that actually we codify and talk about. That's something that has been on the back burner for me. It's something I've wanted to do for years now. And I think it's, yeah, maybe we should actually kick that effort off in 2022. But
0: That's a great idea. Anyone who is interested, please reach out to Peter and myself on Twitter. Is Twitter the best place to say hi to you, Peter? Sure, yeah, my DMs are open. P-Wang, Pwang.
1: At P-Wang, yeah, that's right. It's...
0: At P-Wang, at Hugo Bown. I'm Peter, we've had many conversations over the years, none quite as, as wide-ranging... And there Oh no, actually that's not entirely true. But this is one that I'm incredibly <laughs> grateful for. And thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me on. This has been fantastic. Really appreciate the the opportunity to go all over and connect all these different dots. Absolutely. Right? I think I, I don't think I've really talked about some of the Game B stuff and how that connects to the open source stuff, really in, in a public uh setting quite like this. Fantastic. So
0: thank you for the Absolutely. Too. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Baum. See you in the next episode.